Okay, go ahead in your Bibles and be finding the book of Exodus. Exodus. And uh, only been, I don't know, not too many weeks. We've kind of went through Genesis already. And, of course, we're not teaching uh, teaching chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're kind of going from uh, story to story. And our series has been called Jesus B.C. And what we've been doing is looking at types and figures and shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament. We're looking at examples of how people were saved in the Old Testament. And we're refuting the idea that somehow salvation came a different way uh, before Christ. And we see uh, so far that it is always, from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, it has always been by faith. And yes, it's uh, a difference between how uh, how much knowledge that people have of God, uh, what they're exercising faith in. Uh, of course, we're looking back to Christ, and we are looking at his death on the cross and uh, his burial and his resurrection being substitutionary, being that he died in our place to forgive our sins and to save our soul. That is what we're placing our faith in. Of course, that wasn't what their faith was in in the Old Testament, but they were exercising faith in God and maybe a little bit more general sense sometimes. Uh, but Adam and Eve, for example, uh, God told them, you shall surely die and then he offered them a means of salvation. He says, instead of you dying, this animal can take your place as a substitute. You can be clothed with its skins, representing uh, being clothed with its righteousness as it has died in your place, being a picture of Christ. And so they accepted the substitute that God had offered, and they were forgiven, and they were cleansed, and they were saved. Uh, and we've continued to follow that up through, and we've seen... Uh, Noah, for instance, believed God whenever God said judgment is coming. I'm giving you a means to escape it. And he believed God and was counted him for righteousness. We come to Abraham and God says, I'm the God that created all things. I have chosen you. I have a plan for you. I'm going to make of you a great nation, a great people. And it is going to be the source. Your lineage, your heritage is going to be the source of salvation to all men. And Abraham said, I don't understand it, but I believe it. And he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Same thing with Isaac and Jacob and uh, Joseph we looked at last week, right? Mm -hmm. And so Joseph, as we looked at last week, one of the most complete types of Christ in the Old Testament. And uh, we see that his life in many ways mirrored that of Jesus and that God used him to bring a great uh, deliverance to his people. There was uh, a famine that was consuming the land, and God provided ahead of time a means for his people to not die, but to live through Joseph. And in addition to that, really last week, we, we looked at three different things about Joseph's life, and the reason I'm bringing that back out again is we're going to follow a similar uh, a similar pattern this week, Okay. But last week we saw Joseph and Jesus compared, which is what we've been looking at. Then we looked at Joseph and his brothers, a picture of salvation, as they had nothing that they could offer, no reason why Joseph had to forgive them. They didn't deserve to be forgiven. They had sinned against him greatly. But because of his nature, because of who he was, he forgave them freely. 
Yeah. Right? right? And uh, then we saw, uh, lastly, last week, how Joseph was a picture of the Christian life and how God worked through all of his circumstances to work his will in Joseph's life and to bring about the plan and uh, the purpose that he had for Joseph. And it wasn't always smooth sailing. It wasn't always sunshine and, and rainbows. But instead, we find that even the bad times, God was working all things together for good. Uh, Joseph testified to his brothers and said, You meant it to me for evil. God meant it for good. And so although in Joseph's life, we don't find like a typical point that we can point to and say, okay, this is where he made his decision. This is where he repented. This is where he put his faith in God. We can't really find that point for Joseph's life, but we see it clearly displayed throughout his life. We see the way that he conducts himself, the things that he prioritizes, how even whenever he is being uh, mistreated, he is still trusting in God through his mistreatment, right? And so even though his brothers have sold him into slavery, he can still walk with his head up high. He can still walk in faith, knowing that God's in control. He can be in Potiphar's house and being lied upon and cheated on, and he maintains his integrity. He maintains that which is right. In spite of all that, he says, I am not going to sin against my God, displaying his faith in God. And so whenever he is lied on and he's thrown in prison, even while he's in prison, he conducts himself wisely because he knows that God is on his side and God is taking care of him, right. even though he can't see it. Right. And then whenever he comes out and stands before Pharaoh, stands before the most powerful man in the world, he is able to boldly speak and proclaim because he knows what he is saying is revealed to him of God. Right? Mm -hmm. And so even though we can't pinpoint a place in his life, we see faith is clearly displayed in his life, right? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. And it was his faith that saved him, not his works. Right. Now, I will say that if anyone's works would have saved him, it would have been Joseph's, right? He's one of the only men that we find in Scripture that there is nothing bad recorded about. Mm -hmm. There is no flaws. Him and Daniel would be the two that you could look at and say there's nothing bad said about them. King David, <laughs> Abraham, Adam for sure, he plunged all men into, or into, into sin, Noah, right? Mm -hmm. There's plenty of people that we can find negative things about. So if anyone was saved by their works, it would have been Joseph, but he himself was not saved by his works. He was a sinner, and he gave God all the glory. It was never about him. It was never about his goodness, but it was always about his God and the good work of God that he was doing through him, right? right? And so this week, what we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at uh, Moses. And there is no one within uh, Judaism or within uh, uh, Israel, Jews, whatever you want to look at, that is more highly revered than Moses except for Abraham, okay? And that might be even a competition within the, the Jews because... Moses is the one that gave them the law, right. and he's the one that led them, and he's the one that spoke with God face-to-face, -face, really. And so with that, they highly revere Moses. Mm -hmm. But we know that Moses himself uh, was not saved by his good works, 
It was not because of who he was or what group he belonged to or his family lineage or anything else about him. But likewise, Moses was saved by faith. Anyway, we want to look at him today. Uh, Just a, a little thought that I had here. Whenever we think about the Jews and how they revere Abraham and Moses, uh, Abraham received the covenants and Moses received the commandments. That's why he is so important to the two of them. Or to, the two of them are so important to the Jews. But anyway, I, like I said, I want to try to do something similar to what we did last week with Joseph. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look and see uh, ways that Moses is a type or a picture of Christ. Uh, we're going to look at uh, Moses and salvation, how he was saved. And we're going to look at Moses and lessons from his life for us as Christians. Okay? So that's kind of a giving you the outline ahead of time. Those are the three things we're going to look at. And so let's look at Exodus chapter number 2. And this will be our, our groundwork here, our foundation for us to get started on. And really we're going to cover quite a bit of uh, Scripture, but I'm not going to be reading it quite a bit of Scripture we're just going to kind of assume that you all are familiar with the story. Is that fair enough? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I really don't want to read the entire book of Exodus. <laughs> because the entire book of Exodus and really much of Numbers is recording the works and the life of Moses. Right. Okay. So Exodus chapter 2, verse number 1, where we'll begin. It says, And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi and the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Now, that's probably about as long as you can hide a newborn baby, right? They start getting loud about that time, if not before. Uh, verse 3, And when she could no longer hide him, she took, him, took for him an ark of bulrushes, and daubed it with slime and with pitch, and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him, and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and she said, Because I drew him out of the water. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren, and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren, and he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand, and when he went out uh, the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together, And he said unto them that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. 
But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So we'll stop there for right now. Uh, a lot has already happened in Moses' life, but I want to give a little bit of context. As I said, we're pretty familiar with the story. We'll work from there, but I want to give a little bit of context uh, to what's going on. The children of Israel had been in Egypt about 400 years. We were looking at Joseph, yeah, Joseph last week. It's been about 400 years since then. During that time, God has used Egypt as a bit of an incubator for his people. Uh, during that time, it was very tribal in nature in the area. And if, if Abraham and his family, or Abraham's seed, would have stayed in the land of Canaan, uh, they would have been one tribe amongst many. And as they began to grow, they would have been a threat to the neighboring tribes, and there would have been constant warfare and struggling and fighting. But in Egypt, they were under the protection of one of the largest empires, one of the largest armies in the world at that time. And so they dwelt safely in Egypt. But they were despised by the Egyptians because they were shepherds. And because of their different cultures, there was a prejudice that existed. And so God used that prejudice to keep them from mingling. So 400 years, they lived together, but they continued to be separate during that time. And Israel did not lose its identity in Egypt. God had all of this already worked out. And so not only did he use it as an incubator so they could grow protected, not only did he keep them separated, he also kept them from getting too comfortable. We know later on Israel gets uh, very comfortable in Babylon, and whenever they leave Babylon, most of the Israelites stay behind. And whenever it's time for them to come back to the promised land, most of them stay in Babylon, right? Mm -hmm. Wasn't the case with Egypt. So they become enslaved and they are horribly mistreated, and the Egyptians fear them and oppress them. Right. By the way, one of the reasons why people oppress one another is generally out of fear. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so they feared them and they oppressed them, and that made it even harder for them to mix together and for the Jews to accept their customs and their culture and their religion, and they stayed separate. And it came to pass that at, a, uh, at an appointed time, at a prophesied time, because God told Abraham that they would dwell in is or excuse me dwell in Egypt for 400 years whenever it came to that point of time the the Israelites had grown weary of the slavery they'd grown tired of being under Pharaoh's hand they were ready to leave and that's what God had intended to happen and so it was about this time that Pharaoh and the Egyptians were afraid of the Israelites and they began trying to figure out ways of controlling the population because the Israelites were outnumbering them. And so first of all, they said for the, the midwives to kill the, the Hebrew children, and they refused to do so, and God blessed them for doing what was right. And then they said, okay, well, we're going to toss all of the male children into the Nile River and let them drown. So abortion in, you know, whatever B.C., right? And so that's what began to happen, and they were throwing the male babies into the river to drown and to be consumed by crocodiles. And whenever it came time for Moses' parents to do this, they, as any parent should, did not want to kill their child. They kept it hid as long as they could. They were probably fretting and fearing and worrying and concerned about it. And finally, they had to 
obey Pharaoh's orders, kind of. They threw their baby in the river. Nothing said it couldn't be in a boat. And so they make an ark of bulrushes. They make a little basket, daub it with pitch and with slime on the outside. They make a boat and put the baby in the boat. And the mother can't stand to watch what's going to happen and leaves Miriam, Moses' sister, down there to watch and see what happens. And it just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter comes out and sees this little ark, and she has her maidens to drag it over. They drag it over. She uncovers it, uncovers it, and God sends his angel down to pinch the baby because it's right at that moment in time that the baby decides to start crying. And that crying baby starts tugging at the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. And she says, I know this is one of the Hebrews children who my dad commanded to be killed, but I'm going to take him to be my child. And as Miriam is watching all this, she says, hey, you're going to need someone to take care of that baby for you to nurse that baby. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to be your nurse? And so Moses' sister goes and gets Moses' mom to be paid by Pharaoh's daughter to take care of her own child. That's God for you, right? We'll get back to that here in a minute. But that's the that's what we're dealing with here. And God has a plan for Moses. And God is working a plan in the life of Moses. And going back and drawing from what we've already seen in Jacob and Esau, God knows what we're going to be and what we're going to do and the decisions we're going to make and the attitude that we're going to have. And he knows all these things ahead of time. Does he make us do any of these things? No, he doesn't make us, but God in his sovereignty and his foreknowledge is able to take us with our free will and our independence and all these things, and he's able to fold those things into his plan and make his plan and his purpose happen. And so that's what's going on with Moses. And so God has chosen Moses, and Moses ends up going, and he's in uh, Pharaoh's house, Maybe for a time he's with his mom in her house. I don't know if she says, here, take it and raise it for me for a little while. Take it until it's weaned, and then I'll take it as my own. That's basically the arrangement that's going on here. And so anyway, uh, Moses is now going to be uh, somewhat having the best of both worlds. Okay? Because as Pharaoh's daughter's child, is her adopted son basically, he is going to be uh, receiving the best treatment, care, education, all of the best that Egypt has to offer. But at the same time, he is going to have his mother there taking care of him and instructing him in the ways of God, telling him his heritage and where he came from so that he is still able to know the God of Israel without him becoming an Egyptian, right? And so anyway, we're going to be looking at... Uh, all of this here just a little bit. Uh, but our first thing that we're wanting to look at is Moses as a type of Christ, okay? Can you all think of any connections, anything that Moses and Jesus would have in common? You just kind of gloss over his entire life. Rejected. Okay. They were rejected by the Jewish people, right? It's a very good observation. Anything else? 
that Jesus is going to be killed because they, they, you know, they want to kill all the babies born. So. Mm-hmm. so you find two different times in the Bible that uh, the slaughter of babies is commanded by wicked rulers, right? Mm-hmm. And so that would have been during Moses' time and whenever Herod found out about Jesus, right? And so they were the the uh, target, if you will, of, I believe it was a satanic attack. Because every time that God is raising up a deliverer, mm-hmm. Satan is trying to get rid of it, right? And by the way, Satan has a perfect record for failure. He has a perfect record for failure. He has never succeeded in thwarting God's plan, no matter how hard he's tried. And so just think of this. Satan is thinking, okay, it's almost 400 years. He was aware of the prophecies, right? Satan knows scripture better than any preacher. He was aware of the prophecies and he says, okay, my son is going to go down into Egypt for 400 years. And after that, I'm going to bring him out. Okay, well, it's been about 400 years. God's getting ready to use a deliverer because that's how God works. And so we need to kill the child who's going to deliver. Right? And so instead, God says, how about I hide my deliverer in Pharaoh's house? God's got a sense of humor, right? Now, let me say this. If you were writing the story, if you were coming up with a plan, would you have thought of any of that? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. They both spent their time in the wilderness talking to God. Okay. They had their time God in the wilderness. Okay. Now Moses had a little bit more time than Jesus did, right? <laughs> yeah. If we were split Moses' life up into three parts, uh, he had three 40-year periods. Okay. Three 40-year periods. He was uh, 40 years in Pharaoh's house. He was about 40 years old whenever he slew the Egyptian and had to flee. Okay? And then he was 40 years in the backside of the desert in Midian. And then he was 40 years in the wilderness leading the children of Israel. So he lived to be about 120 years old. Okay? So three 40-year periods in his life, and that kind of breaks it down simply. Um, Okay, so Moses as a type of Christ... Uh, of course, he was to deliver God's people, right? Moses delivered them physically. Jesus delivered them spiritually, right? Uh, this first one that I've got written down here, though, is a little bit of a, uh, a difference instead of a similarity. But Moses was born in Egypt, placed in a basket, and raised in a king's house, okay? Jesus was born in Israel, Placed in a manger and raised in a carpenter's house. A little bit of a contrast, right? Both were targeted to be killed after birth. You already got that one, right? Whenever grown, they both presented themselves to the Jews and were rejected. Peter got that one. Mm -hmm. Chapter 2, verse 14. Who made thee a prince and a judge over us. Right? Same attitude they had toward Jesus. They both turned aside to the Gentiles after they were rejected, and they received a Gentile bride. I thought that was interesting, right? And so after Jesus was rejected, after he was crucified, uh, he is now turned to the Gentiles. This is the church age. He is, he is receiving a bride unto himself. Okay? But 
Moses also returned to the Jews after a time, and he was accepted and through tribulation brought, judge, or, yeah, brought judgment and deliverance onto the people of Israel. Okay? So that's something past tense now. For Jesus, this one hasn't been fulfilled yet, but it is promised and prophesied in Scripture that Jesus will again deal with Israel in the tribulation, and likewise, he's going to bring judgment upon the world and deliverance of his people out of that tribulation. And then he is going to lead them out of that tribulation into a kingdom over which he resides over, right? And so Moses led the people of Israel out of uh, out of Egypt and led them into the promised land. Jesus will one day lead his people out of this world and into his promised land. And so you see these parallels existing all the way back in the Old Testament and how well they overlay the things that Jesus would do. If you would just take and run them parallel one to another, we see how God has had this plan all along. He's kind of hidden it, uh, woven it into the tapestry, if you want to call it that way. He's woven it into the tapestry of his word. And so over and over we're seeing, yeah, this isn't plan B. This isn't something that God has just come up with, but this has been God's plan from the very beginning. And he has showed it over and over and over and over in his dealings with his people, and with the world. And so, so many ways that they were both alike. Not as many as Joseph, right? But still several ways that they are alike. And so he was to deliver the people of Israel, following after uh, his father, following after God's plans for him. Um, and so those are ways that the two of them were alike. I'm, I'm wanting to kind of... Uh, rush these first two points to get to the third one, okay? So our second point here, uh, looking at Moses and salvation, uh, is there a time that we can look at in Moses' life? Is there a point or an instance or a circumstance that we can point to and say there is where Moses was saved? There is where he trusted Christ. In an Old Testament sense. Okay. Well, his faith was put to the test there, wasn't it? When they killed the Egyptians. Okay. Very kind of my brother. So, trying to connect how we believe. You're on the right road. Someone. You're on the right road, actually. With what we were talking about earlier with Joseph and not really having anything wrong that you can point to in his life. Just in that little passage that we looked at for Moses, uh, Moses is already a murderer and a fugitive of justice. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So if we're thinking about salvation, a murderer and a fugitive yeah. of justice. So, so I'm trying to connect, like, how do you get saved by, by committing something wrong? So God have the way to save someone. Do Christians ever do wrong things with the right motive? Yes. You realize you can do the right thing for the wrong reason, but you can also do wrong things for the right reason. <laughs> anyway. But you can do wrong things for the right reason. Uh, you look at uh, putting that example to the side. 
you can look at the Christians that are uh, protesting and treating uh, homosexuals and different things horribly because they say, well, homosexuality is wrong. And so they protest and they go against all of those things. And so their motivation is right. They want God's word to be, uh, they want it to be living according to his word. They want to use God's word and live according to godly principles. But are they going about the right way? Are they doing the right? No, they're not. Okay. Even the Jews in Jesus' time, they crucified Jesus. But many of them, what was their motivation? Telling the truth. Okay, we, we look at some of the main... Go ahead, Anna. Yeah, they thought that he was a blasphemer. And so, yeah, Annas and Caiaphas and some of them said, he is a threat to our power and our authority. Yeah, wrong thing, wrong purpose. But there were a lot of the Jews that said, hold on, he's a false teacher. The things he's saying doesn't align with what we believe. And they thought that they were right. Case in point, Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul thought that he was doing God's work whenever he stood by and assented to the stoning of Stephen. Right? Right, yeah. right thing for the wrong reason. So now bringing this full circle back to Moses. Why did Moses kill the Egyptian? Brother. Okay, so he said, "This is my brethren, right?" Mm -hmm. Maybe he thought he was going to be a hero. Okay, Acts chapter seven. <laughs> We're going to be seeing, according to God's word, what was Moses thinking? Because we can try to assign motives to him, right? Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen right before he's being stoned, and he is going through and recounting the history of the Jewish people. And down in, uh, let's see, verse number 20 of chapter 7, it says, In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and in deeds. And when he was a full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren. By the way, who put it in his heart? Okay. Came into his heart to visit his brethren and the children of, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. Verse 25. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. Okay. Okay. Continue with the question there. Okay. So Stephen is telling us under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, right, that Moses had an idea that God was going to use him to deliver the people of Israel. 
But in Moses' idea, what that meant was that he was going to stage some sort of an uprising, that somehow he was going to be a vigilante, somehow he was going to rebel against the Egyptians, somehow it was up to Moses to deliver them, right? Mm -hmm. But that wasn't God's plan. Right. So Moses had the right motive, he had the right heart, he was trying to do the right thing, he was going about it the wrong way. Because it's not God's will for him to go and kill the Egyptian and hide him in the sand. Just as a side note, if what you're doing and you think it's God's will that you're doing it, but you have to look this way and that and make sure you don't get caught, that's a good sign that you're not doing God's will. Right. Okay? But anyway, so with Moses and salvation, we find that at this point in time, he has already made a decision. He has already decided to reject the ways of Egypt and he has identified himself with the Jews, right? Not only has he identified himself with the Jews, he has believed God's plan and purpose for the Jews. And he says, God is going to lead them out of here. Or maybe he said, I'm going to lead them out of here because that's God's will, right? But anyway, he says, God's going to lead them out of here because he has promised them a land and a nation, and that through them all nations of the earth would be blessed. And he has accepted that, he has believed that, and he has thrown his lot in with the Jews and with the God of the Jews. And so at this point in time, he already believes God, right? And so there was a decision that he made, a point in purpose in time, or point in place in time, that he rejected the things of Egypt. Now, if you'll bear with me for just a minute, let's go back through Moses' life for, for just a moment. So he was born in a time whenever the Egyptians were killing all the babies. His mom ends up raising him through the, the means that we were talking about there just a moment ago. And so during his formative years, he's sitting on his Jewish mother's lap being nursed of his mother and hearing all of the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm -hmm. Hearing all the stories of the covenants and the promises and all the things that God has done for the Jewish people. On top of that, he is aware of his situation and where he comes from. They never hid it from Moses that he was a Hebrew. Even his name, Moses, means I drew him out of the water. And that was during a time whenever names meant things. And so whenever he was old enough, he's like, okay, why am I called drawn out of the water? Well, it's because your Hebrew mother put you in the water and I drew you out of the water. And so Moses' mother was able to relate to him the story and say, God made you a special child. God has a purpose and a plan for you. God is doing something different in your life and from the very earliest points in Moses' life, he had the idea implanted in his head that God had a purpose and was going to do great things for him and through him, right? And so the whole time that he was being raised up, he knew that he was a Jew. He identified with the Jews. He knew all the stories of the Jews, but he also was hearing all the things of the Gentiles. And he was being taught in all of the ways of the Egyptians and this God, and that God, and the other God, and this, and the other, and all the confusing things of their false religion, mm 
and the God of the Jews, the God of all creation, got a hold of his heart through all of that. And he says, all this stuff that the, the Egyptians are doing is rubbish. All the things that they are doing, I want nothing to do with it. I am going to reject that. Yes, I have uh, experienced palace life and I've seen the wealth and the opulence and all of these things, but there's something different about the God of the Jews. There's something more real to that. There is a purpose and I've seen that he has done something in my life already. I was intended to die and he has worked a special miracle in my life and he has made me to live. And so I know that he has a plan and a purpose for me. So I have rejected the God of the world, the God of Egypt, and I have put my trust in the God of the Jews. And so somewhere through there, he made a choice. If you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 11 now. Can't look at him without Hebrews chapter 11, right? Verse number 24 of Hebrews 11. By faith, there's our, our phrase again, right? By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So there was a choice he made whenever Pharaoh's daughter says, oh, you're my boy. And he says, no, I'm not your son. I am a Hebrew, right? There's a point in time he made that decision. It says specifically, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. And by the way, it says specifically that Moses was esteeming the treasure or the, the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. Now, he didn't know Christ. Jesus hadn't been born, right? But the prophecy was there, and he says, I'm going to be amongst this people that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm going to be amongst the people that salvation is going to come from, and I would rather be amongst God's people than to have all of the riches of Egypt. Okay, so esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And so we find that it illuminates what was going on in Moses' head and his heart during that time. So all of those stories that his mom told him as a boy gripped his heart and he trusted in there. That's one reason why it's so important to raise your children in church and be in church and these kind of things, right? Because it gets them, gets the word of God into them early, right? right. The Bible says to train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it, right? Yeah. Now, by the way, that's a proverb. We can't take that 100%. Proverb is a general uh a general general principle. There we go. Okay, general principle. Does that mean that every child that's raised up in church is going to 100% not depart? No. But as a general rule, train them up in the way they should go. Okay? And so anyway, this was being poured into him as a, a young child, and he believes God. He trusts God. He says God is doing something from these for these people. He's going to deliver them out of Egypt I believe that he has brought me here for such a time as this tomorrow from Esther, right? And so whenever he starts seeing these things, 
He identifies with his people. His heart is smote within him. By the way, it says that, that uh, what was the phrase that I pointed out there a minute ago? That it, it came to his heart, basically. It came to, he, for some reason, just felt drawn to go out and observe what was going on with his brothers. And that was God dealing with him, working with him. And whenever he saw this going on, rather than going to God and saying, God, you've got to deliver me, you've got to do something, he says, I've got to do something about this. And we tend to try to do things in our own strength. Right? right? And so he kills the Egyptian, and he is then going into the wilderness for 40 years where he gets a wife, becomes a shepherd. And so the first 40 years he's raised up in Pharaoh's uh, house trying to learn how to be a secular king and ruler. God didn't need a secular king and a ruler. God needed a shepherd. So he spent the next 40 years on the backside of the wilderness herding sheep, thinking that he was completely wrong in all of the plans that he had for himself and all of the assumptions he made about God and God's plan for him, right? He said, I completely failed. I completely blew it. And I'm just going to sit out here and sulk in the desert, spend my time with the sheep. And for 40 years, he is growing meek, right? And he is getting a heart for the sheep, a love for the people of God, okay? And so during that time of quiet, that time in the wilderness, God is able to minister to his heart and to transform Moses and make out of him the leader that his people need. He didn't need a Pharaoh to stand in front of the people, proud and arrogant, thinking that he was God. He needed a shepherd to stand before his people and lead them as God instructed him, right? And so anyway, we see Moses and his salvation here uh, as these things were revealed to him over time and he realized that uh, he had to reject He had to turn away from the gods of Egypt and pursue after the God of the Hebrews. Mm -hmm. He had to reject the one and accept the other. He put his faith and trust in the God of the Hebrews. Okay? And so through that, that is how he was saved. As we look at the rest of his life, uh, he didn't follow God 100%. He messed up. He was a murderer. Right? He was a uh, fugitive of justice. We told you about that. And even whenever God finally calls him, you know, you think spiritual giant that Moses should have been, right? (laughs) Remember, I said he was ready to take on God's calling when he was 40. Yeah. He was ready to take on that calling. If God would have appeared to him in the burning bush whenever he was 40, at the time that he slew the Egyptian and hit him in the sand and says, Moses, I have chosen you. Go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Moses would have marched up to Pharaoh and spit in his eye. (laughs) That was the kind of man that Moses was at that time, right? But God had other plans. And whenever Moses fled away and spent that time in the wilderness, he had came to the place where... He was insecure, right? He was insecure. He didn't know where his place, his purpose was. He was content to just grow old and die with the sheep in the wilderness. And so whenever God appeared to him in the burning bush, 
and says, I've got a mission for you. I want you to lead the people out. Moses says, I've already tried that. Didn't work. You've got the wrong guy. I'm a failure. I'm washed up. I'm messed up. And God says, no, I've got a plan for you. And he says, well, I can't go and speak because I'm, uh, I'm tongue-tied. I'm stuttering. Whatever his speech impediment was, he says, I can't speak well. And he kept coming up with all of these excuses. And so what I was going into with all of this is we look at Moses and we hope that he's some kind of a spiritual giant, right? And God comes to him. He has nothing but excuses. 80 years old. We think that his life was behind him by then, right? Yeah. 80 years old. He says, God, I'm already washed up. I'm already done. There's nothing that I've got left to offer you. Find somebody else. And so if we were looking at him by his works for salvation, that doesn't sound like the kind of Christian that we would expect if he was saved by his works, right? One that's going to make all kinds of excuses and try to get out of God's will. But anyway, God in his patience, long-suffering, right? He continues dealing with Moses. It seems like God almost loses his, his patience with him, but of course he's God. And he says, well, I know your brother, he can speak. Well, you can use him as your mouthpiece. He can speak on your behalf. And then whenever he finally gets down there and he's doing what God has called him to do, uh, we don't hear much out of Aaron. He has no problem speaking whenever the time comes because what we find from that, I'm getting ahead of myself, but what we find from that is whenever God calls us to do something, whenever God has a plan for us to do something, he is going to equip, equip us even if we don't feel as if we are equipped. Right? Moses is looking at it and saying, God, you're saying for me to do all these things, but I've got all these reasons why I can't. And then whenever he's actually doing what God has him to do, God gives him everything he needs to do it. He didn't need Aaron after all, right? Okay, so that we've already kind of started on this, but looking at Moses and the Christian life, we find that Moses was a part of something much bigger than himself that spanned far before him and long after him, right? And if we will apply that to our own lives, we're a part of a bigger picture. God is doing something bigger than our 60, 70, 80 years that we're on this earth. He's been doing something for several thousand years, and we don't know. It may be days, weeks, months, years. It could be a thousand years yet. I don't think the world's going to last that long, but it could be. And we're just in the middle of all of this, and God is wanting to do something in our lives and through us, but it's something that's part of so much bigger picture. But for us in this current moment in time, this is the biggest thing to all of us. We don't see the big picture. The big picture is our life because this is all we've got, right? But the Bible tells us that our life is but a vapor, right? We are a piece in God's plan. We are a thread in his tapestry. But God can use our life to have consequences, to have impact that transcends our lifetime, something that we'll do for generations into the future. I would be interested if there was a way for us to trace some of the things that are going on now to get all the way back to the root to where they began. Some of the revivals of times past, some of the people, even in my own life, okay, just taking it to an individual level. If you would trace through all of the different uh, 
things that have happened down throughout history to get me to the place that I am now, it would probably be amazing and astounding to see how far back that goes. Right. Okay? I mean, I could go back to my grandparents that raised my parents up in church and that I heard the gospel from a young age and that I'm saved as a result. But what about them who had impacts on their life? We talk about the butterfly effect. What if there was one person who decided something differently back 200 years ago, I might be in a completely different place in the world. Right? So what makes the difference? What is the deciding factor in that? God. Right? Yes. So what I'm wanting to bring out of this is that God is working all things together for his plan and his purpose without violating man's free will because he is big enough to factor in all of the things according to his foreknowledge, and he can orchestrate things phenomenally without us even realizing what he's doing. How much would you, if you had to put a, a number to it, if you had to put a percentage to it, how much of your life would you think that God had his hands in? How much of your life right now in the place that you're at is the result of what God has done? See, a lot of times we only think that God's involved in the big things. There might be times and places that we can pinpoint in our lives and say, well, God was there. God did this. But how intricately involved in your life do you think God is? The Bible tells us our very hairs on our head are all numbered. By the way, that's a changing number. If you don't believe me, come and look at our shower drain at any point in time. I know the hairs on our head is constantly changing. Okay? It says that there's not even a sparrow that falls to the ground without him knowing about it. Does anyone care about a sparrow? I mean, in the grand economy of the world, sparrows are worthless. But to God, he knows about every sparrow. So that also tells me then he is intricately involved in my life. He knows every breath that I take, every thought that I think. Every decision I'm going to make, he's aware of it ahead of time. He knew me before I was ever even conceived in my mother's womb. And before that, I believe even all the way back in the beginning, whenever he said, let there be light, he already was aware of who I was and what I was going to be, and the decisions that I was going to make, and the way my life was going to plan out, he knew it back then. There's a song that whenever he was on the cross, I was on his mind. You ever hear that? I believe there's such a... He knows all of these things. He knows it so intricately. Now, this is where we have a hard time with wrapping our brains around, okay? Just because he knows all of these things doesn't mean he causes any of them. So how do we get together our free will and his sovereignty? How do we reconcile the two of those? How is it that God can make these things happen without forcing us to do things? Was it God's will for Moses to slay the Egyptian? Was it God's will for Pharaoh to order the slaying of all of the 
infants at that time. It wasn't, was it? There's so many things down throughout time. It wasn't God's will, but somehow God can put that situation, even the bad circumstances, into his will. Not that he wills it to happen, but he can fold those in to what he is doing because he is that powerful. He is that able. He is that knowledgeable. He is that wise and he is that good. He can fold all of those things together to make things come out according to his will and his purpose. Right. So we're not fatalists. It's not, okay, whatever whatever God wants to happen is going to happen. I could right now throw my hands up, quit, abandon the ministry, abandon you all, abandon my family, go somewhere and drink myself silly and fall over dead in a hole. I could do that. I have a free will. I'm able to do that. Would any of that be God's will? No. Would he cause any of that? Would I be stupid to do that? Yes. Okay, but I could do that. Okay? So it's hard for us to understand that God knows all of the paths that we're going to take without us being influenced. Well, I guess maybe we're influenced. Well, without us being made to take those paths. We're not puppets. We're not robots. We have our own will, but God knows the decisions we're going to make. And he folds those into his plan. Okay? And so that might be a lot to think about. Maybe that's a lot to comprehend. But hopefully that gives you an appreciation for how involved God is in your life, how big God is, how good God is. And hopefully that will uh, encourage you to place your life in his hands for you to trust him to work all things together for good. Because here's the other lesson that I want us to to get from this. Moses was never consciously trying to make any of this happen, except for whenever he killed the Egyptian. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Look at what it took to bring Moses to the place that he was. There was a decision that was made all the way back whenever Joseph and Jacob brought all of his family down to Egypt, right? All the decisions that transpired over time to bring them to the place where the Israelite people had multiplied, Pharaoh was afraid, all of these things that was going on, right? And then whenever Moses was born, God didn't come to those parents and say, build an ark of bulrushes and put him in it. But do you not think that maybe God could whisper in their ear, tug at their heart, give them a thought? Yeah. And they're like, I have an idea. You ever just have an idea and don't know where it comes from? Yeah. I think God can do that. Did he make them do it? Nobody can implant the idea in their head, right? And so they had the idea. We're going to throw our child in the river, but nothing says we can't put him in a boat. And so they put him in a boat. And... Even in that, it's like, okay, well, we've prolonged the inevitable. The crocodiles will get him, right? Best case scenario, at least we don't have to see it happen. But it just so happened. For some reason, Pharaoh's daughter was feeling extra itchy that day. (laughs) For some reason, she decided it was time to take a bath just as that baby was in the bulrushes. And she just happened to come down where the baby was at. And it just happened to cry 
right at the moment that it needed to tug on her heartstrings. Right? All of these things coming together and just happening when God is weaving them together. God knew the type of personality and the heart that Moses would have and how the situations that he was subjected to was going to affect him. And he knew that at 40 years old, that Moses was going to be overcome by passion or pride or anger or whatever it was and slay the Egyptian. He didn't cause it. But God put the idea on his heart. He says, you need to go down and look and see what's going on. And it so consumed him. He says, I got to do something about it. He went too far. But God used that to send him fleeing away because he realized I can't do this my way. I can't do this according to my flesh. He flees. And then God spends 40 years transforming Moses. And up until this point in time, up until the burning bush, has God directly intervened in any way? Did he ever come down to any of them and say, you're going to do this or that or the other? He's never direct or directly intervened in any way. In other words, everything that was going on in Moses' life up until the point of the burning bush was exactly the same as normal in our lives from day to day. Mm-hmm. Right? Just going about from day to day, living, making the best decisions you can, trying to do the best you can, trying to figure out things, not sure which way you're going, not sure how this is going to work out. You're not intentionally trying to save the Israelite people, right? You're not intentionally setting out saying, okay, this is what God's want. They had no clue. They were just bumping their way through life, not realizing that God had his hand on the rudder and was steering it exactly where it needed to go. So I want to draw the connection and we'll quit here. Do you not think that God can still do the same thing in your life to get you where he wants you, where he needs you, to find his will, to know what he wants for you, to do and accomplish exactly that which he decides and what he Uh, wants you to do. Do you not think that he can still do that the same as he did Moses? And so Moses is looking back over his life and saying, well, that was just a coincidence. That was a mistake on my part. I really messed up there. I shouldn't have done that. I wish I could have done this different. I have regrets about this. Boy, those were wasted years in the wilderness. And every single bit of it was God steering and guiding him, bringing him into the place where he could stand before the burning bush. And God says, you're going to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Mm-hmm. He didn't realize that 80 years, God was so much in control of the happenings in his life to bring him to that place. Whenever the outsider looking in would say, man, that is a mess. Right? Whenever you look at it and say, well, I don't see where God's at there. God was all over from beginning to end. And so the challenge for us today, we are saved by faith, right? We need to also live by faith after salvation. We need to continue trusting in God to order the events in our lives 
to do the things and to equip us for the things that he desires for us to do. Because just as Moses wasn't sitting out there trying to make sure that he was in control and making things happen the way that he thinks they should, we also shouldn't be here trying to figure out three steps or 10 steps ahead of what God wants us to do and for us to try to make them happen. Instead, we should be content to sit in the passenger seat, allow the Lord to have the steering wheel, allow him to decide which direction we're going to go, and trust him to work all things together for good. The Bible specifically says that he will work all things together for good. Not if we try really hard and we find the way that he has had hidden, he's the one working them together for good, right? The Bible says that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Okay? So if that's the case, that means that God is placing his footsteps, that God is setting them where they need to go. God is guiding. He is bringing the circumstances. He is putting them through the the trials and the troubles that's going to shape them and refine them. He is bringing the the different uh, uh, people and the different uh, problems and whatnot, or even successes into their life that is going to get them to the place that they need to be to accomplish what he wants them to do. And so if we would get a bigger view of who God is and what God is doing and a smaller view of our part in the matter, we'd be a lot better off. So if we would break it down to our place as Christians in order to see God's will and God's purpose in our life, the very first thing that we must remember, we have to trust Him. We have to trust Him. First, I guess we should say, first of all, be saved. But we need to trust Him. Know that He has a will, He has a purpose, and He is more than capable of leading us and guiding us and putting us there. I've said this before, but whenever I was younger, and Steve still crops up from time to time, I was scared to death of missing God's will. That somehow that I would be too stupid to get God's will for somehow I would miss it and God would have a plan for me and I would mess up too bad or I would just be too ignorant and somehow I would just, I would lose the plot. Okay? And God had to deal with me and say, I am wiser than your stupidity. I'm more powerful than your weakness. And so if God wants to get a point across to me, he can do it, even if he has to talk to me through a donkey, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, as I said, we need to trust God. We need to live according to his word. Just determine ahead of time and say, okay, I'm reading God's word. I'm studying God's word and whatever his word says, I believe it. I'm going to do my best to keep up, to live by the principles in God's word. And then the third thing is let him direct your paths. This is where we have trouble because we have our desires. We have our purposes. We think we have it figured out. We're slaying the Egyptian. We're burying him in the sand, yeah. right? Because God, we know what we're supposed to do. And we're going to go about and we're going to do it. Right. And we're like a bull in a china shop. When instead, if we just trust him and say, God, we want you to direct our paths. Yeah. We want you to be in control. I'm going to do the best I can living day by day. I'm going to work my job. I'm going to raise my family. I'm going to live by godly principles and I'm going to desire for my feet to walk the path that you have for them. God, direct my feet. Yeah. And he's going to direct your feet and you're going to be surprised where he leads you to. Exactly. Yeah. Or you can try to decide your path and you can fight God every step of the way. Yeah. Okay. 
So with that, I better quit. I have another page worth of stuff, but I want to leave it. I'll wear you all out. You'll quit coming back. So, Peter, did I ever answer your question? It was answered in... in but I gave you more questions. Study, but I gave you more questions, yes. <laughs> that's, that's good. The question that I have, it was when you, you asked when did Moses was saved. And it wraps in my mind to say, okay, perhaps when they killed the Egyptians or, or not. But again, there was a question. The question rose was, how did we even become to kill the Egyptian, believing that God is going to use him mm -hmm. when he was living in, in, in the in Pharaoh's house? Mm -hmm. But again, in the study, you've shown up that wraps up that he was raised by his own yeah. mother. So possibility, he, he was taught things of... of, 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 mm -hmm. of April because it was raised there. That was the answer. So the second question came in the. Let me get a little bit. My notes, sorry. Yes, when you explain about the will of God mm -hmm. and our will, we make some decisions mm -hmm. which may, may or is they are wrong. Mm -hmm. But again, God to work through those uh, those decisions to fulfill His will, maybe or to to bring ourselves to Him. Right. So the example I will put in is uh, uh, about Joseph. God told children of Israel they will have to go for captivity for four hundred years, if I'm not mistaken, in Egypt. Mm -hmm. But he never planned down, I may be wrong, how they're going to go there. Mm -hmm. We just found out in the Bible, they go there via Joseph. Mm -hmm. So was that, that's the question. Was that the will of God, uh, Joseph's brothers, to mm -hmm. sell him to Egyptians so that the plans of God will fulfill? Well, that's where we have to get a bigger idea of who God is. Because if you think about all the circumstances that led Joseph into Egypt, okay? Okay. Uh, Jacob had children by four different women. Was that God's will? All of that mess in his house of him getting tricked and marrying the wrong woman and then having to marry another woman yeah. and then the fight over all of the children, mm -hmm. right? And then taking in the, the bond women and, you know, all these different things, having more children, and then having chaos in his house and jealousy and bitterness and anger and hatred amongst the brothers so much that they would sell him into captivity. None of that was God's will, but God used it to work his will. Okay, uh, bring it to a New Testament example. Yeah. Judas. Yes. Did God make Judas betray him? No. Was it God's will for Judas to betray him? I don't think so. It wasn't God's will. Because that's wicked. It's sin, and it's never God's will for there to be sin. Mm. But can God take our wickedness, our sinfulness, and bring about good from it? The Bible talks about beauty from ashes, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what he was doing. And so he knows what's going to befall, and he can take all of those things and work them together and bring the circumstances together so that his will is done. 
we go back to Joseph and his brothers. They throw him in the pit. What are they wanting to do? To kill him. And it just so happens that the Ishmaelites come by on their way to Egypt. And it just so happens that their greed prevails and says, hey, we can profit from this. Is greed God's will? And so they sell their brother. Is that God's will? And so Joseph goes down to Egypt in slavery. Is slavery God's will? Okay. And so now he's a slave in Potiphar's house, and God is blessing him in spite of his circumstances, right? And now Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce Joseph. Is seduction God's will? Is adultery God's will? Is lies and false accusations God's will? No. Okay, is good men going to jail falsely accused God's will? But can God work through all those things that aren't his will to bring about his will? So that's that's way it makes God different. So that's how big God is. Yes, because if, if we can answer all the question about what we do, myself, what I do, and in the, in the sense that God use my wrongdoing yeah. to bring me to Him. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fit in my mind. At all. Because we can't but, comprehend God. Yes, but that makes God different. Yeah. Okay, so two things from that, okay? Um, that lets us know that all of our failures, all of our sins, all of the times that we messed up, that God can still do great things from it. Right. But that does not mean that we have a lesser view of sin and that, oh, God's going to do good things from it anyway. Let me go out and get drunk and cheat on my wife. God will make good out of it. No, that, that's not what that means. But again, that does not deliver. Okay. To, to someone who's saved and believed, you will have to understand how, how that's how big God is. Mm-hmm. Telling someone who's, who's outside the world, God can use your, thank you, God can still use your wrongdoing mm-hmm. to, bring your, to bring you to himself. Mm-hmm. Does not live in a room of saying, yeah, just go do whatever you can do. At the end of the day, God, if a will for you, will just bring you out of it. People be I will guess someone become ignorance of following God mm-hmm. with his path because he knows, ah, he's big, he can, can even take mm-hmm. me from the mess that I'm doing. Well, that's where Paul talks about, shall we continue in, uh, in sin that grace may abound, God forbid. And so it comes down to a heart. You look at uh, Esau. Mm-hmm. Esau had no desire for the things of God. And so did he see God's will in his life? Jacob's brother, Esau. The Egyptian. Okay, no, no, not the Egyptian. The the, yeah. the one who, who, who sold his birthright. Yeah. Did you see God? Is what is that the question? Yeah. Definitely did. Did Esau see? God, was God willing that Esau go the direction that he went? No, it wasn't God's will. Okay. But I, I will guess he benefited from from mm-hmm. God's will. It wasn't mm-hmm. God's will for what mm-hmm. happened, but Esau benefited from God's will if I'm putting one. Well, we go up to Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you look at the idea of, okay, I can live wicked, I can live sinful, God will work it together for good. Mm-hmm. It may not be your good. It may not be your good. Because Pharaoh... Was it God's will for him to mistreat the people and do all those things? No. 
Did it work out good for Pharaoh? No. Did it work out good for God and his people? Yes. Okay. So, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. You can go out and sin and say, okay, God's going to put it in. That's where it comes down to Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And so if you're living your life, trusting God, desiring to serve him, desiring to please him, following godly principles, God is going to see to it to direct your steps, to work all things together for good, whether it's bad or good. If you decide to just go out and live it up in this world and be wicked and do whatever, God can still work his will for this world in spite of the way you're living. And take Adolf Hitler. Okay? None of Hitler was God's will. Did God use it though? He used it so that the Jews would gain favor with the rest of Europe and would be dealt back their own nation, would re-inhabit their nation and be a people again for these last days, right? And so God still used that. But do you want to be Hitler today? No. You want to be where he's at? No. Okay. So does that make sense? It is. It makes sense. So for everything you we we went through. They make sense only. That's that's my point. Also, they make sense only for someone first who saved, who saved, and then who believe in God, saved and seeking God. Seeking God. God yes. So that takes a lot of pressure off of us because there's been plenty of days that I was anxious about how do I find God's will? How do I make these things happen? How do I plan a church? How do I see it grow? How do I see it help? How do I do? I I I I I, I right. And what I have to come down to is say, okay, I know that God called me. Okay. I know that he put me here. I can see how he's ordered my steps. And so if he has done this, I can look back and, and I can see all my personality flaws. I can see all my shortcomings. I can tell God all the reasons why this isn't going to work, but then I've got to come back and say, okay, God, I know has called me here. He has placed me here and he has a purpose for me here. And I don't know how to make it happen, but he does. So I'm just going to faithfully follow him day by day, year by year, and wait and see what he's going to do. It might be 40 years in the desert before I realize it, right? It may not even be in my lifetime like Abraham, right? Did he even get to see all the promises fulfilled? No. And so it may not even be in my lifetime. It might be something that happens within, you know, some of your all's children, or my grandchildren or something. It may be a different generation that God is working now, things that are going to blossom and that are going to transform the next generation. later on. And so that's where I just have to step back and say, okay, God, I'm trusting you with my life. I'm going to serve you the best I know how, and I'm going to leave the results up to you. Yeah. Okay. And whenever I fail, I'm going to confess my faults. I'm going to allow him to cleanse me of the guilt. And I'm going to allow him to work that into the story of my life and for him to bring good from it. Anything else? Okay. Well, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. I thank you for your your time tonight. I know we've went long, but that's normal. Uh, So let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Just thank you so much, Lord, for this passage that we've looked at tonight. and, And Lord, just what a wonderful thing it is that uh, uh, that you worked so much in spite of Moses, Lord, and 
I know he's often been lifted up as being uh, such a great hero of the faith and so many great things that he's done and all. But, Lord, there's so many things that you have done in spite of him. And, Lord, I know that he could have never worked him out himself. He never planned it out, but it was what you did through him. And, Lord, I know the same things holds true for us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to get a view of how great you are, how big you are, uh, how uh, involved you are in our lives, Lord. And help us, Lord, just to follow you in faith, allowing you, Lord, to write our story, allowing you to, to work things together for good, Lord. And, Lord, we just thank you and we praise you for all you do. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. I can hear you, but I'm trying to get this thing to stop and it won't stop. Press the red button. I'm pushing the red button. It's not working. There was a there was an update on it or something. And now it's 